he's so unassuming, you would never think he's like, you know, a classic Fusha Arabic expert. But for a three-month period, Tim and I, Tim from Ohio and I, would sit together at the Fordham lounges on the second floor, and he would teach me Arabic. And it was one of the most uh, demasculating experiences of my life because, you know, I'm like, I'm from the Middle East. I should speak Arabic. I know how to do it. But um, that's one of the challenges of bilingualism, I guess. What do you think? My name is Adela Kochav. And I'm Maria Mwaba. We are the Daughters of Diaspora. And this is Americanish. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Americanish. This week, we're talking about bilingualism. As you guys know, we're both bilingual. Mariam was born in Egypt and grew up speaking Arabic, and I was born in Mexico and grew up speaking Spanish. Both of us had to take on learning English upon arrival into the United States, and we talked a bit about this in one of our early episodes when we started the podcast. Today, we're going to dig a little bit deeper. The proportion of bilingual speakers in the U.S. has nearly doubled since 1980, and the numbers continue to climb. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, as of 2021, 21% of the people in the U.S. speak a language other than English at home. That's one in every five adults. As the world we live in continues to get smaller and become more globalized, bilingualism becomes more of an important topic. One of the most important ways that bilingualism is talked about is with regards to the job market. Globalization also means a global economy. Today, bilingual employees are in high demand and on average earn 20% more than employees who speak only one language. People who speak more than one language also have a better chance of scoring coveted roles in fields like sales and customer service, medical, social services, and management. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the challenges and advantages to being bilingual as a first-generation immigrant and how bilingualism impacts one's identity and cultural practices. We're also going to share some of the quirkiest experiences as people who speak more than one language and ask questions like, what language do you think in and what language do you dream in? Amazing. Awesome. So let's start from the top. So Mariam and I are both bilingual, like we said. And when I first came to the U.S., um, I was thrown into school and my mom thought I spoke English because I went to a school in Mexico that supposedly taught English. The only thing I knew how to say was my name and the kinds of fruits. So my mom was like, just do whatever you learned in school. So I show up the first day of American school in America with my hands on my hips, a big smile on my face. And I said, hi, I'm Adela and I like to eat pears. And I became the girl that liked to eat pears. My friends still talk about the pears. Um, that was just like the only thing I knew how to say. So my mom decided to put me into speech therapy and I got the English, you know, drilled into my mind. I ran drills. I went, you know, once or twice a week. And now I speak English and I owe that all to Cynthia, my wonderful speech therapist. Mariam, I know your, your path and journey to learning English was a little bit different from mine. You know, it was a little bit different, but I do have to say there were also fruits involved in my English language really? learning experience. <laughs> yes. Um, so it's it's really weird. And this is part of the immigrant and Americanish story. But life is hard, but you don't know it's hard until you're older and you're reflecting back on it. And I think that also applies to the English language learning experience for me. Like at the time, I don't think of it. It was just kind of like a fun thing that I had to do. And sometimes it was difficult. Sometimes it was more fun. But looking back at it as an adult, it was definitely like 
wow, that was that was a thing that happened and I, I did. Um, learning English for me was uh, through PBS, the, the channel, Channel 13, when we were younger, that you didn't need to have cable to even flip on. And ESL classes in elementary, middle school, and I didn't have to do them in high school, but... Um, I do remember still struggling to learn the the language. I remember one of my earliest memories, it was like fifth grade. I had been in the U.S. for a couple of years and um, I just could not get some of these words down. So my teachers would stay after school and I would stay after school with them and they'd make flashcards with color codes and all this stuff. And I was get I was finally starting to find a rhythm, finally starting to make sense of things. And this one thing, I just my brain refused to wrap itself around, which is the difference between sign and sing, s s s i g n versus s i n g, and I just could not think. I, I I just couldn't figure it out. Every time I would see those two words in my head, they were the same. And I just remember my teacher, I think she got frustrated with me at one point, and she just started doing sing, and she started singing the word sing, and then putting the word sign in script, like a signature. Mm. And I think after a couple of days in after school, practicing the difference between sign and sing, I finally got them. But it came down to like a lot of these uh, small things that, you know, you don't think about on a day-to-day basis, but sign and sing look very similar. The letters are just changed, but they mean totally different things and sound totally different. Mm. The other one that really tripped me up was read versus red. And not read the color, but red as in like past tense red. And they are spelled the same exact way. Yeah. And that really, I, I could not get over that itch. And it was just frustrating. Was there anything like that for you? Yeah. So first off, English is a terrible language to learn. If you learned (laughs) English and you're listening, you know exactly what we're talking about. It's a terrible, terrible language. And shout out to all the teachers out there because a good teacher can really make a difference, um, especially for a child where it's not their their first language. Um, for me, this is, this is kind of embarrassing, but I remember it like it was yesterday. It was the word city. I know it in my head, but I remember one time there was a point I just wanted to write the word city and I, S I D Y S I T Y. Like, it doesn't matter what I did. It just (laughs) didn't look right. And I'm like, no, why? Like, I know how it's supposed to. I just couldn't, for some reason, like, I I couldn't get the word city to be on the paper the way that I thought about it in my head. Um, so that, that, that's like the, my, my, my scare word. Um, and it's funny because I actually, I had, um, a teacher in third grade, Mrs. Brosniak, shout out. Um, who I ran into afterwards years later. I ran into her maybe three, four years ago. And she like, you know, was with her grandkids. And she's like, oh, this is a girl I tell you about. And I'm like, you tell your grandkids about me? She said, I tell all my students about you. I'm like, what do you mean? She said, yeah, I tell them I have a student who was absolutely brilliant, who I knew was going to go far and change the world, but couldn't spell for her life. I'm like, what? (laughs) She's like, I hope you understand you never got more than one fourth of the words right on a spelling test, but we just always (laughs) gave you 60s and 70s so you would pass. I'm like, oh, that's so kind. Thanks. And she's right. I didn't know how to spell. I still don't know how to spell. Thank God for autocorrect. They always said you wouldn't have a calculator in your pocket, so you have to learn math. Hey, guess what? You have autocorrect in your pocket. You don't have to know how to spell. Amen. Amen. And I I was always a really bad speller too. And I had this one teacher accuse me of not reading enough Mm. because she saw that I was struggling with spelling. And I was just, I was so offended because I remember being that as nerdy as and dorky as this sounds, but I remember I would like sneak a little flashlighter to, to get underneath my covers just so I could read those Joni, Joni B. Jones book, oh, like Joni past Jones. bedtime. 
And I just, I remember her accusing me. She's like, you're not reading enough. That's why you're not good at, you're not getting better at spelling. I was like, how dare you accuse me of not putting the hours into my reading? I I get in trouble for these reading skills, miss. Um, Okay, just a quick note on the fruits thing, because I I said that our story is connected with fruit and didn't mention how. Um, so ESL in the third and fourth grade, what they do is they come to every class and kind of like pick you up. Mm -hmm. So they come to my class, pick me up, they'd go to the next class and pick you up. And then they put you in this weird separate room. That's a a hybrid classroom, hybrid closet, you know, weird laboratory. Yeah. (laughs) Ours (laughs) was a closet. I don't know about you. Yeah. It is very much a closet. I was just trying to find a nicer word to say closet, but it was a closet that they put like a a dinner table and Mm -hmm. chairs around. And I remember there was this one year where it was me, uh, a kid who spoke Spanish and a Russian girl. And all three of us did not speak a word of English and obviously did not have any other way to communicate, but we can tell our colors and our fruits. So there was one day where the teacher that was supposed to be teaching us English was out and they just didn't put anybody in charge of us. So it was just me, the kid who spoke Spanish and the girl who spoke Russian and I speak Arabic in a room together, just kind of like no thoughts, all vibes, like everybody just kind of try to figure out how to communicate with each other. And we finally, like 10 minutes into the class, we realized nobody was coming and we were kind of on our own. And we just pulled out the the pages with the colors and the fruits and started teaching each other what the colors and the fruits are in each other's language. So it was very much not English second language class, but it was like a Russian and Spanish second language class for me because for a week I learned, you know, my fruits and colors in Russian and in Spanish and not English. And I just found that to be hilarious and a very Americanish moment. Like we were definitely not learning English in that room. I love that. You should track them down and be like, hey, like platano <laughs> manzana manzana that's right yeah it's it's fun with the letters excuse me with the fruits and the languages because everybody can can say them in their for in, in their native language so you can find a, a common ground and usually there's one that sounds like yours in your language yeah it's a great unifier but it, it definitely yeah. is weird to go to school in one language and go home in another language what was that like for you Oh my God. It was so weird. Um, obviously, but it was, it was a lot of code switching and Mm. we, I mean, again, it's, you know, in retrospect, 2020, uh, vision is whatever the, the saying is like 2020 version is perfect. Um, it was code switching because not only were you trying to assimilate and learn a new language and, and, you know, they say the first things you learn when you learn a new language are curses, which I find to be very, very true. true. Uh, so you're, you're trying to be cool and be friends with these new people that you're trying so desperately to get to accept you. But then at home, and this is the, uh, the shared experience of so many immigrants, you're still having to be the middle person for your parents. Like I remember mm-hmm. translating documents from the IRS and from social security and from the green card people. And, you know, sitting down at the table, you're like six, seven, eight, and your f- dad's forcing you to translate IRS papers. And you're like, I nobody prepared for me this. This is not <laughs> what a six, six year old assignment should be. Um, so you kind of were growing into two different people, one at school that was learning English and learning the curse words and, you know, learning how to get online and punch in your your, your number to get lunch. And then at home, you were becoming an adult in a lot of ways and, and helping your parents build a household in a new country. Um, was that similar for you? Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, for me, my mom already spoke English when we got to the US. My mom speaks a ton of languages. She actually speaks six languages. 
And my dad didn't speak as much English. He thought he spoke English. And I, I don't know how much you know about, you know, Mexican Jews, but Mexican Jews specifically uh, have a lot of confidence. So they all think they speak English, but they, they don't. Um, but they very confidently walk into a room, almost like Israelis. You know what I mean? <laughs> they just like, they're like, I right. speak English. And it's like, no, you don't. And it's like, nope, I do. And it's like, I... Again, I don't think you do, but it's nice that you think you do. Um, so for me, it was like my, my parents, like they they handled their own with that. But it was very odd because I felt like I did have two two different worlds. And like you said, it's code switching because it's it's not just about, you know, the languages that you're speaking. It's also I was associating English with my outside life and Spanish with my right. home life. So then there's just certain things that you can express in certain languages. Um so relating to my peers is is something that I feel more comfortable doing in, in English. So even when I have a friend who also speaks Spanish, for some reason, my default is to speak English to them because that's how I've related to peers throughout the years. Um, and when I speak to my family, of course, I speak in Spanish, but not to my younger sisters. Again, it's, it's just, it's very interesting because there's certain languages you have for certain people um, and certain languages that you use for certain things. I know for me, mm -hmm. I can't express um, love and affection or even anger and things like that, that there are strong emotions in Spanish as well as I could in English. What about you? I think I thousand percent agree. I not only feel more comfortable, I mean, I'm, this is an unfortunate case too, mm -hmm. because I wish I was able to do both in both languages, but I definitely feel like I'm able to uh, ideate and um, express my ideas and thoughts and feelings way better in English than I, I am in Arabic. And you know, a lot of languages don't lend themselves to ideation. And maybe mm. this is coming out of ignorance on my part and feel free to push back. But I think something like Arabic, it's hard to express love the way you do in English, the way that you do in Arabic. And I think it's much easier to um, you know, express harsher emotions in Arabic because the language lends itself to it. And no, I'm not saying Arabic is a harsh language. I think Arabic is a beautiful language, but there's more, um, there's, there's a broader spectrum in the dissatisfied emotions than there are in the satisfied emotions for Arabic. Mm. Like I feel way more comfortable telling my sister, I love you, or I care about you or, or whatnot in English than I do in Arabic. But I'm, if I'm speaking Arabic, I'm ready to fight <laughs> in a lot of ways. Like I, there's a lot of defenses up and maybe that's a lot of my trauma, you know, manifesting itself. Um, what do you think? The, do you find that in Spanish there's a different range of emotion than there is in English? Uh, I don't know if emotion, I feel like a lot of people, especially people who speak Spanish, think it's a very romantic language. Also people who don't speak Spanish, like guys weirdly fetishize that. You'd be surprised how many times I like, you know, I'm going oh, yeah? on like a first date and they're like, you speak Spanish. That's so hot. Say something to me in Spanish. And I'm like, um, quiero más pasta, like bring me more pasta. Um, <laughs> so romantic and, and so sexy yeah. right there. Um, but for some reason, I think for me, it's just that the, the comfort level isn't there anymore. So it's, it's less about the range of the language and more about the range of my use of the language. Um, Spanish does have a really cool grammatical structure. My family, if they listen to this, they're going to laugh because they they love making fun of me because I think this is so cool. And I don't know if you have this, but it's a conjugation in Spanish. Spanish is really cool and that it has a grammatical conjugation called like ado or ada, which is like in the state of. So for example, chile, you know, means spice, right? So enchilado means that you are in the state of having too much spice right? Like mm. when you eat too much spicy, you're like, oh, I'm spiced out. It's like, that's enchilado. Same thing like with like 
Um, I don't know. You can do it with like any any word. Let's say, for example, I spend too much time with my sister um, Arlette, right? I can say estoy enarletada, which is a made up word. It's not a real word, but grammatically it would follows. I had too much Arlette in my life, right? So it's like this wow. fun grammatical structure that we don't have in English. So whenever I have too much of something, I, I don't really know how to explain that in English. But it's again, it's I think less about the the range and it's more about the uses. And that's a use I'm very comfortable in. I love making up words in Spanish. Love it. You know, the, we talked about this in uh, one of our first episodes too. It's somewhat similar to this congregation, conjugation, which I found really fascinating. But like a lot of, uh, you know, American Egyptian or Arab American people will use the Arab conjugations on English words mm. and like kind of come up of a hybrid English Arabic. And my grandpa used to call it Arabizi, Arabi- which is English. Yeah. yeah like, d- is there a similar thing for Spanish? Yeah, Spanglish. <laughs> Spanglish. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, what a beautiful thing that is just kind of merging those and, and a lot of ways it, it makes the, it makes, uh, the lives of people like us really fun and interesting Mm -hmm. and easy because I, I know what I want to say, but the language that I want to say it in that thing does not exist or I cannot figure out a way to say it that way. Yeah. Um, So I'll, I'll take this thing that's familiar to me and I make it yours. I love that. I I love that. And it's something that like has been happening a a ton. Like there's obvious advantages to being bilingual. And we talked about them in the intro, of course, job searches and just understanding people, obvious advantages, but um, it's also become almost trendy to mix languages. Like Mm -hmm. Spanglish is very trendy, especially like if you speak Spanish, if you throw in an English word here and there, it's like, Ooh, that's so cool. Same thing in the U S like people love throwing in like a couple of like Spanish words here and there. It's cool to be like mixing these bilingual things. And, um, there's, there's a TikTok trend that they say like name something that's like classy if you're rich and trashy, if you're poor, like having mixed silverware or minimalist walls, right? Things like that. And one of them said speaking a second language. And I feel like that's at least like in my experience, like now it's becoming crazy trendy. Um, everyone loves to mix languages. If someone knows like a slang word in some language, they just throw it in there. It's like the equivalent of that person who like went abroad once and now they're like saying like Barcelona <laughs> like every two seconds. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, yeah. Last time I was in Barcelona. Barcelona. <laughs> I like we get it. You like cheese. Relax. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, the, it, it's You're right on the nose. I think there's so many advantages and challenges that come with bilingualism. Um First being this TikTok trend that you mentioned, classy if you're rich, trashy if you're poor. Did you ever feel that way growing up, whether it was classy or trashy to be speaking two languages? Um, I always felt it was so cool. I, I just loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, there were there were some instances where I, I wouldn't say like the word trashy, but like there'd be times where like, you know, there's someone that's only speaking Spanish. They're trying to communicate with someone who speaks English. And I just like kind of like hop in there and I'm like, hi, do you guys need some language assistance? I can help translate. And it, it just kind of felt like a, a bridging of worlds. And that was, right. that was like an interesting feeling for me to have. But other than that, no, like I'm, I'm, I don't know if you could tell, I'm a very outgoing person. So I wear my languages very much on my sleeve. I'm very proud of them and whether or not they're cra- trashy or classy, it doesn't matter. They're me. So I might as well wear them out. Uh, what about you? You know, I, I I hate to admit this, but there was a point in my life where I was kind of embarrassed of speaking Arabic. Mm. And I have no idea where this comes from. And it might be something as simple as like, you know, in attempting to assimilate, you want to leave all these things behind. Um, and I wonder if you've ever felt the same way, but that that was a very real time in my life where I was trying to do everything I can to 
not speak Arabic, learn better English, um, and kind of erase the Arabic from my brain, which I so deeply regret. And I've spent the last six years trying to bring back. Did you ever feel that way at any point, even if it was for a fleeting moment? Yeah. I mean, especially like coming from a different country when you're little, like you just kind of want to be like everyone else. For me, it was more like cultural references. Like I wanted to be watching the shows that everyone was watching and the jokes that everyone was telling. And you just kind of want to be part of like the greater crew and whatever makes you different is something you want to, you know, bog down a little bit so you can be accepted. So yeah, I've, I've felt it. Um, Luckily, you know, college is a lovely place of acceptance and that is a place where difference is celebrated and everyone tells you to live your truth and to be comfortable in yourself. And that's really where I started like owning, owning it. And it's actually the opposite. Like I I remember even in high school, like I'd be like talking to like my friends and they'd be like, oh, like you're so lucky. Like you have so much to write about in your college applications because you're from a different country. Like (laughs) that's not fair. And I'm like, I didn't choose this. <laughs> right. Um, right. But, but it's funny because like I, I felt not, not embarrassed about it, but um, people were kind of like using it against me as in like, oh, like you're diverse just because you happen to be born somewhere else or because you speak a certain language and now that's going to give you an advantage that's unfair over me as opposed to right. if I'm bilingual, I have a skill set. If I come from another country, I do have a different lived experience from you. So it's like, why should I feel like I have to apologize for – for my life. Um, you know, it's, it's like people unfairly, um, using difference instead of against you, they're using it in spite. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, it totally does. And I find that so distasteful in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways, but particularly because like, it's not easy being from a different country. Like you're seeing it's a, and it, it's beautiful and it's, you, you can turn it into something beautiful, but you know, these shared experiences that you and I have and so many of our listeners have um, are shared because they're difficult and immigration is difficult. Like you're still trying to be an American and you're still fighting for it every day. So just because you have a cool topic for your college essay doesn't erase the pain and trauma that uh, that story gave you. Mm-hmm. Um, and to kind of dismiss it as, you know, well, you have a cool thing to talk and write about. Like that doesn't mean it's fun or the easy. The cool like, thing was scary. <laughs> Yeah, we get to make it cool and fun here on this podcast, but Mm -hmm. we also talk about how serious this is and how it fundamentally changes who we are as people. Um, Yeah, and and now that the... Oh, you can go ahead. (laughs) I just wanted to, like, highlight the advantages of of bilingualism. Like, yes, it's hard, and uh, we do this all the time on on the show where we talk about the good and the bad of everything, and we kind of try to see all of it, Um and this is one of those moments where it's important to look at the good and the bad. Yeah, so that's actually where I was going to take it to next. Well, first off, I just want to point out, I didn't even write about bilingualism or being from another country or coming to a new school or not speaking English in my college essay. So in case you thought that's what gave me the edge, everyone listening here, haha, jokes on you. I wrote about yeah. family trauma. Boom. Anyway. Um, <laughs> is that true? Because that's actually yeah. what I did too. <laughs> really? Oh my gosh. High five. Yeah. yeah look at us. Yeah. Trauma yeah. bonded. Like, m- where I am is the least interesting thing about me. What's up? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> no, that's actually literally what I wrote about. Wow. I guess, I guess yeah. we're not that special, but, um, but I was going to say again, uh, that, that does take us to, to the next. Obviously there are challenges to being bilingual too. So what would you say has been the biggest challenge for you? There, there's a couple big challenges with bilingualism. Uh, the first and the one that comes to top of mind when we talk about this is a lot of times it feels like I speak neither language. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not proficient enough in Arabic to, you know, 
have a lengthy discussion about the economic status of a providence in Algeria or whatnot, but but I can get by, and in the same way in Arabic, and I'm sure people have who have listened to a couple episodes of this uh, show, this podcast, have probably heard me like ramble on for a couple of sentences and then stop and say, was that coherent? Did that make sense? And that's a lot of my language insecurities coming out, and a lot of, um, you know, I call them like the drunken monkeys in my head, like mm. telling me like, oh, you don't, you're not even speaking a coherent language. Like, what are you even doing? Um, and it's very real. And there's there's a, a clip of me early on in the show saying, you know, like language is my biggest, one of my biggest insecurities because I just never know if I'm saying what I need to say. And there's been so many times where I uh, say something. It's a running joke at work for me. Like, I'm I'm always 85% getting to where I need to go. Like, the other day I said, um, that's going to be a woozy. And that is not what I meant to say. <laughs> the word is doozy, I guess. So I, I was like, people get what I'm saying, but it's not exactly what I meant to say. Um, or sometimes I'll just flip things around and they don't make a lot of sense. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges for bi bilingualism. You just never feel like you're fully 100% comfortable in one or the other language. Um, in college, I took on Arabic as a minor just because I really wanted to get my writing and reading skills back. And I remember there's this um, class that I was really struggling in. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Arabic, there's so many mm -hmm. freaking different dialects. There's like hundreds of dialects. So there's classical Arabic, which is Fusha, and that's Quranic Arabic. That's classic modern standard. Um, and that's, you know, what official legal documents are in. It's what the Quran's written in, that jazz. And then there's about hundreds of other dialects between the Levant, Egypt, the Gulf, Saudi Arabia. And then with, within each country, different, you know, villages that are 10, 15 minutes away from each other, they can speak different dialects. So... All that to say is that I was really struggling in classical Arabic because I had never studied classical Arabic and I just speak Egyptian dialect. Um, so my professor suggested that I get tutored from one of the people that were excelling in the class. And it was this guy named Tim from Ohio. And I think that's what we should call this episode, a guy named Tim from Ohio. Yeah. And he's just, you, he's so unassuming. You would never think he's like, you know, a classic Fusha Arabic expert. But for a three-month period, Tim and I, Tim from Ohio and I would sit together at the Fordham lounges on the second floor and he would teach me Arabic. And it was one of the most uh, demasculating experiences of my life <laughs> because, you know, I'm like, I'm from the Middle East. I should speak Arabic. I know how to do it. But um, that's one of the challenges of bilingualism, I guess. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't have that exact experience, but there'd be times where like my friends from NYU that were taking Spanish in college would be like, hey, can you help me with my Spanish homework? And they would hand me like a sheet of conjugations and I'd be like, no, <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't, but have a nice day. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. and, and again, it's, it's like, again, when you grow up bilingual, when you grow up first gen, you're not going to have the full command and, and you're not going to have schooling maybe in a certain language. And like you said, like, can you write about the intricacies of a revolution in a certain language? I can't, you know, my, my Spanish is, um, it's limited to what my family talks about on WhatsApp, you know, lunch at grandma's right. house on Wednesday. That's, that's what I know how to say. Um, but yeah, I think that like one, one of like my, my challenges when I'm, you know, speaking Spanish or bilingual is, um, what language do you talk about when you're faced with someone who 
also is bilingual in that language. So for example, like my best friend, Andrea, she's from Mexico also, and she moved to Miami the same year I moved to Deal. She's also Syrian, Mexican Jew. She's a lot like me in a lot of ways. And we met at NYU. So we spoke in English and we're both fluent in Spanish. But I remember the first time I heard her speak Spanish was um, we were like with her family or with my family. And like, we were speaking Spanish in the circle and like, I just looked at her and I was like, who are you? Like, it didn't sound like her. It also didn't sound like me. It was the first time, like, really we were speaking Spanish to each other. And and now it's just like, whenever I'm with her, we, we speak English. And every now and then we'll throw in a Spanish word if there's something we can't say to fill in the gap. Um, but right. it's very interesting when, when you have, like, someone who speaks both of your languages, which one do you opt for? Um, and, and I see this a lot with my grandpa, for example. Like, my grandpa just assumes that everyone speaks Spanish all the time. So he speaks to all waiters in Spanish. And I'm like, grandpa, you can't just speak to people in Spanish. But then at the same time, when someone who does speak Spanish comes up to my grandpa, my grandpa struggles through English and he goes, hi, yes, we will have please. And it's just like, I look at him and I'm like, okay, like you can, you can Spanish now. So I, I think that one of the challenges, you can Spanish yeah, now. you can Spanish now. It's, it's like the, the stealth Hispanic in me. That's like, when do I bring out the Spanish? When do I not? Right. Right. Have you ever caught somebody talking about you in Spanish because they didn't think you spoke Spanish? Oh, yeah. A, a hundred times. I mean, it happens all the time in catcalls, right? If I'm walking and I'm being catcalled right. in Spanish, no one knows I can understand because why would I, you know? So, but that's just like fun throwaways. But it did happen once that I went to the Bronx Zoo with my mom and my little sister. And my sister had to go to the bathroom. We were stuck in traffic. My mom's like, just get out of the car, find for, you know, somewhere where she can go. And uh, we've, saw a hair salon and we walk in and there were these two ladies there and they said to each other in Spanish, oh, the little one has to use the bathroom. Let's just charge them. And I didn't say anything. My sister went to the bathroom. They said it was going to be $10. I said, sure. I pulled out a 10. I paid. And then on my way out, I just said in Spanish, you should be very careful about who you speak about in Spanish. And then I walked out right. and and that's it. That's where we left it. Because it, again, why would I speak Spanish? But it does make you like, it, it's interesting because in, in this time it happens, you know, someone was speaking Spanish and didn't know I understood English. But I'm sure it happens a billion times a day the other way around where people who are speaking mm. English are speaking about someone who speaks Spanish thinking they don't understand what they're saying. And I'm sure that they can. So it, I think it's just a, a message to ourselves that the world is very deceiving, especially in this day and age. Be mindful right. and be kind with your speech no matter in what language. Um, but what Amen. about you? I, I, it's, I don't want to say a hundred times, but I've definitely uh, a few times on the train, on the subway, I've heard people like talking about something about me in Arabic. Um, this is, I just, this literally popped into my head. When I was in Egypt, people didn't think I spoke Arabic just because I guess I'm not, you know, dressed in <laughs> traditional Egyptian garb or like I'm not with the fashion because I'm dressed American mm -hmm. and people would talk to me assuming that I'm like a foreigner. And my Arabic is, is decent, especially now I think I would say it's pretty decent. Um, so I would definitely understand what they're saying, but they were talking about me like I'm a foreigner. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, it kind of hurt my feelings. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. Like, do I look that different? I'm one of you guys. And there's this could be a whole other sep like separate topic and separate episode about, you know, feeling that your people don't see you as part of them. And mm -hmm. there's this othering that happens when you have assimilated um, and you've become part of a different culture, a different country. But, you know, your heart is still somewhere else or your mind is still somewhere else and you want to be part of both. But that's just not how people see it. You, you can't be part of both in a lot of ways. As much as the show is about being part of both, a lot of the people around, uh, around the world don't think you can be part of both. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. And I think, again, like that's 
that's something that is changing. I think that the world is growing. We are going through globalization, but I feel like different generations had different experiences from, from what we're going through. So we're talking about our experiences as first-gen immigrants, millennial, cusp, Gen Z women in New York. But of course, that's different for different immigrants that immigrated at different periods, different periods in their own lives or to different locations. So how is it different for younger first-gen immigrants than older ones? So there's a couple different ways to approach this question. And I think if we really want to simplify it for the sake of the podcast and for the sake of, of just understanding what this question is attempting to answer is, I think immigrants today um, generally have an easier time. And I, I'm talking with respect to bilingualism. Um, I think whatever language you speak, if you come live in a cosmopolitan city like New York City or any of the other ones around the States, um, you will generally find a community that speaks your language, that has a restaurant from back home, that has traditional garb, whatnot, um, than it was 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago. Um, and maybe you can, you know, tell me if I'm way off here, but like, I feel like Egyptians coming to New York today, um, have a way easier time because they have the support systems built out for them, whether they're official or unofficial, but there's, there's people here to guide you, to teach you where you get English classes, to tell you where you can get a job, even though you don't speak English, where the church is, where the grocery stores are, where I think back in the day, and back in the day, I mean anything from 10 to 50 years ago, or mm. even further back, I think you kind of had to figure it out on your own. Um, and with that, with that comes a lot more acceptance. Like it's much cooler nowadays, as the kids say, to be speaking two languages than it was two years ago. And there's way less pressure to assimilate. Our parents, my parents, your parents, Adela, had to catch up pretty quickly, mm -hmm. um, whether it's learning English or, or, you know, making sure your kids had the right type of clothes to go to school with. And I think now uh, we as a society, and this is a very positive thing and something we should be proud of and should, you know, aim to become better at is that we're accepting of a lot more, a lot faster. What do you think? Yeah, I think, I think you really are on point there. I think that especially nowadays uh, with PC culture and all that, people are just very accepting today. People are very patient today. And and even, look, when you first touch down in JFK, if you get sent a secondary check, there is like a, a chart that has like different languages that says, I speak mm -hmm. Spanish, I speak this in whatever language it is. And you just point to your language and they bring you a translator. I can't imagine what it was like immigrating to the US 20, 30, 40 years ago when if you spoke Cantonese to get a Cantonese translator to even tell them that you speak Cantonese might take, you know, hours and hours and hours and, and it's way less accessible. Same thing. Like I'm, I'm in court for, for part of my internships and they always have court translators that are just available to pop in and out of court and to translate in real time. And that's something that I think, um, is, is phenomenal. I think that people themselves are also more, more patient. If you're asking for directions and people understand you don't speak English, they're slow with you, you know, they're patient with you. Maybe they'll pull up a map and start showing you where to go. And that's something that I don't think would have happened 20 or 30 years ago. So I think you're a hundred percent right. And I think that you're right. It is cooler, you know, trendy to speak another language these days, which is wonderful. Um, but again, I think that the older generations had it hard. Um, like I said, my, my mom speaks six languages and, um, English was the last one she learned. So she has a heavy accent or it was one of the last ones she learned and she has great command of English, but 
again, it might not sound like that. And I remember I spoke to um, a girl I took a class freshman year called The Cultural Nature of Language, and her family was from Haiti. And I don't even remember this girl's name, but she was talking about how her mom is so smart in French, but no one who spoke to her in the U.S. in English would ever know that. And she seemed to have Mm -hmm. this sadness about her where she was like, no one would ever know because that's just not a language she'll be comfortable in. And uh, for some reason that stuck with me for a long time. Luckily, I mean, my mom can communicate great. Her accent is wonderful. Sofia Vergara type, like that's, that's what I think of when I hear my mom (laughs) speak. Um, But it does make you wonder for, for a lot of these immigrants, some of them that had whole careers before coming here, the language barrier is what might make others see them as uneducated. What do you think? Absolutely. There, I can't tell you how many cases there are of, you know, cops, Egyptians moving to the States and, you know, they're doctors, neurosurgeons, lawyers, engineers, physicists, pharmacists, like a, a wide array of incredibly difficult, I would say, careers to attain education and, and otherwise. And they come here and, you know, they're, they're working jobs that are not up to uh that level they're not do they're not physicians they're not pharmacists and they're they're doing hard labor jobs or low skill jobs i have i have a complicated relationship with the word low skill job mm-hmm. low skill job i don't think any job is technically low skill but they're they're doing um remedial jobs because there's this language barrier and they need to figure out a way to catch up learn this whole new language so that they're able to perform the neurosurgeries and you know do whatever physicists do and and it's a huge gap. And I have I definitely resonate with the fact that this friend of yours just had a deep sadness to her about saying, you know, my mom is an incredibly intelligent human being, but nobody would know mm-hmm. because she can't do it in that language. Um, I will say just on the accents thing, something that I've really uh, been thinking a lot about accents. Uh, Trevor Noah is a comedian. A lot of people know. Um, he has this like whole bits about accents and what accents really are. And he said... All accents really are is somebody speaking your language with the rules of their language. So if you're ever trying to understand why an accent the way it is, and this has really helped me understand a lot of accents, um, like think about the rules of that language. Like think about the way an Arab accent sounds and all the little tendencies that happens. And then think about the rules of that language. So for example, you're here like um, if somebody's Arab and they have an Arab English they're speaking English in an Arabic accent. They can't say bees mm-hmm. and they can't say thus, like th sounds. And why is that? One, because there's no p in the Arabic language. It's just b, alif b. And then the other thing is there's no th sound in the Arabic. So that that noise, that thing that you learned in elementary school, th, they just never learned it. We never learned it. So I, I this is such a tangent, but I just really love thinking about you know. Somebody speaking your language with the rules of their language and what, how that results in accents. And it just made me think about your mom. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, there we go. Sofia Vergara. Adela Cojada. Yeah. Alegrita. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think so. I think that like when you em- immigrated and what age you immigrated definitely has an effect on your bilingual experience. But I also think a lot of it has to do with geography. Um, so obviously yeah. we're, we're both here in New York. Um, but my favorite bilingual city, if we can call it that, is Miami. Because you go to Miami and you might as well be in Latin America. Whenever people are like, oh, I'm from Miami. I'm like, oh, so you're from Latin America. Like Miami, sorry. Like (laughs) we'll claim that one. But whenever you're in a lot of cities, either in Southern California or like the Southern Texas or or 
somewhere in Miami, um, you're more likely to hear Spanish than English sometimes. And it's very cool. And again, for, for someone like my grandparents that think they speak English, but they actually don't, Miami is a very comfortable place for them because they're going to a bilingual city. And um, I, I love the idea of a bilingual city. I mean, Jerusalem is an example of a trilingual city. And, and it kind of like makes me wonder, like, how do people experience a city differently depending on what languages they speak? Right. Yeah. And there's a lot of these pockets, as you were, of different parts of di all across the world where there are officially or unofficially bilingual. Um, mm -hmm. The first two places that come to mind is Astoria. Everybody has that has ever listened to the show knows my deep, undying love for Astoria, Queens. Um, Little Cairo, the, every sign ever is in Arabic in Astoria, like the restaurants, the the travel agencies, the bank, um, and I really love it. It kind of feels like a little slice of home going back there, and I will gatekeep that food as well um, <laughs> since I'm becoming the gatekeeper of things. Um, and then Dearborn, Michigan, which a lot of people know about because that also is like little Yemen, little Lebanon, little Beirut, little Cairo. It's, it's just where immigrants congregated and therefore the businesses that were built in those neighborhoods um, and the institutions that were built in those neighborhoods were built around the people and to accommodate the people that were living there. Um, could you think of any other like pockets that had have that have uh, an influence on you? Yeah, I mean, for me, my my favorite was actually last week. My mom and I went to Elizabeth, New Jersey, and if you've ever been to Elizabeth or Edison, New Jersey, there's a very big Indian diaspora there, and. Just like we walked around and there was just like dress shops with beautiful Indian dresses and amazing Indian food. And all the people know each other who own all these businesses. They all live and work together and all of their doors are open and they pop in and they ask each other questions. And it's like, you don't even have to hear English there. My mom and I walking around, like everyone was like looking at us like, why are they here? And honestly, like, I don't know why we were there. We were having a lot of fun looking at dresses, <laughs> but um, it was just like really fun because we sat down at the restaurant. This is really funny. We sat down at the Indian restaurant and um, we're, we're trying to like look at what food to order. And luckily for us, most Indian food is vegetarian. So we don't have to really worry about a lot of things. And we're looking through the menu. We have no idea what anything is other than like your typical, you know, tikka masala kind of things. And the, the table next to us just like reach and they're like, are you new here? We're like, yeah. <laughs> and they're like, here, we'll help you out. And we kept asking questions. They had this one thing called like a, a patara or something like that. I, I'm butchering the parada. name. Yeah, yeah. Parada, which is essentially yeah. a quesadilla. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the like Indian awesome quesadilla. Yeah. It was great. Oh my God. My mom and I had the time of our lives there. And then also it was really confusing for them because they're like, so where are you guys from? And we both white girls go, Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing was really fun, really confusing, really fun language moment. Um, hearing my mom in her accent, trying to speak to, to the waiter in his accent. And it was just not, something was not translating. It was really funny. Yeah. That is so sweet. That's an Americanish moment right yeah, there. Yeah, an Americanish moment. Um, but I have a lot of these Americanish moments, mainly not, not in person anymore, but on social media, where like there's so mm -hmm. many times where my algorithm's just confused and it has no idea what to show me. It's like, I'm going to show you things in Spanish. I'm going to show you things in English. Every now and then French pops up in there and I'm like, no, wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> swipe left. Yeah, swipe left. It's like my, my algorithm's trying to code switch. Yeah, and, and social media, just while we're on the topic, has become a great way for people, including myself and you, Adela, to tap into our heritage and our home countries without doing a lot of work. Because I, I think the main one of the main reasons that people have such a hard time 
both assimilating and maintaining their, their home culture is because you need to pick one at some point that becomes a part of your daily life and your daily routine. And the latter becomes one that you have to actively seek out and put work into seeking out. Like, you know, growing up, I chose to be American first. And I still choose that every day, but that makes being Egyptian a lot harder. I have to find the Egyptian restaurants. Mm. I have to make sure I go to the Yemeni grocery store on Saturdays and make time. I have to make sure I carve time out for, for church. And it kind of becomes like you're living your life trying to be two things at the same time. What social media has done for that is that it has allowed you to seek out who you are um, and your heritage and your culture and your language at literally your fingertips. And I don't necessarily have to, you know, find the Tarab artist that's putting on a show in this obscure, uh, you know, auditorium in Brooklyn to listen to some Arabic music, but rather all I have to do is just go to his Instagram and listen to him there. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really beautiful in, in what social media has done for us. And, you know, anybody that's listened to this has probably heard us talk about the evils of social media, but... Would you say there's any of that for you? Like, what is, what is, um, you know, Americanish? How does Americanish translate on your social media feed? Yeah, I mean, for me, what I like most about it is that there's certain, like, um, generational jokes or, or, or I guess I, you could say it's just, like, like cultural knowledge that's just, like, common for people. Mm -hmm. um, and because of social media, I get to have that even though I'm living here in the U.S. So, like, for example, there's, like, um, certain bits on social media, certain comedians on social media that are huge in Mexico. But because of social media, I get to get that on my feed, too. And, and now suddenly when I go back to Mexico, like, I know all the typical jokes that they're making. Like, for example, you know how we have, like, a Karen like here yeah. in the US, like the idea of a Karen, that's like a cultural, a cultural phenomenon, a cultural moment, a cultural tidbit, whatever you want to call it, that we all know what a Karen is. So in Mexico, we have that too. Like we have like a Sophie Osanti, which is like the, the white skin. It's like the Valley girl. It's like a Britney. Right? The white skin? Yeah. The <laughs> an actual thing. If you don't follow white skin on Instagram, you should get on that. I mean, most of their posts are in Spanglish actually. So you'll get at least at least half of it. Um, half of it, yeah. <laughs> it's like um, the Valley Girls, like the wannabe Americans, but like they're they're not, but they are, and they try to speak English, but they don't. And it's it's like a Sophie. That's what I call them. Like it's like okay, Sophie, shut up, Sophie, right? So it's like the the funny thing, uh, and I get to know that because I have all of that on social media. But I do want to give a huge shout out if you're listening to this. Louis McFly, I've been following him forever. And if you don't follow him, you should get on that. He does language swaps for popular songs. He does them from English to Spanish and Spanish to English. So he translates it. He'll start singing in the original language of the song. And then he'll be like, yo, language swap. And then he'll swap the song and he writes the lyrics in the opposite language. And not only do I get a kick out of it, it's also really nice to listen to because he happens to have a great voice. Right. So um, if you're bilingual or if you're not bilingual, give him a like, give him a follow, check him out. And if you're listening... I love your work. I comment on literally all your videos for you to do Emmanuel or Mijares and you never answer. And people like my comments. People want to hear Emmanuel. I'm just saying, like, if you're listening, happens to be. We got to get Louis on, on the podcast. We got to make pod. him, like, do the swap. We got to teach him Arabic so you can do an Arabic swap. Like, it's, it has swap. to be a whole thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and Adela showed me uh, a couple of his videos leading up to this because I had never heard of him before. And it is very cool. So it also gets the Mariam stamp of approval. Go check it out. Um, my version of that, and I don't know if it's as intense just because I've just found this person a couple of, of weeks ago, but I'm sure 
people listening have seen one version of it or, or another. Uh, this new artist, Saint Levant, um, he's from Gaza and, you know, his bio says, from Gaza with love. And he does tri quadruple lingual songs. So he's from Gaza, speaks English, lives in, I think, France. So he does these songs where he, there's all three languages in one verse or in one chorus. Um, and I think it's uh, a great way for people to, you know, play with and get flirtatious with all the languages that they speak and all the sides of who they are. Yeah. And I, I, I love that. And just to wrap up, just as promised, because we always get this question. Literally, I was talking to a friend today and she's like, what's today's episode going to be on? And I was like, oh, we're going to talk about languages. And she asked it again. So we're going to keep answering this question. What language do you think in and what language do you mm-hmm. dream in? Okay. Right now, I think in English, mm. just because it's default. Um, if I'm thinking about Arab stuff, <laughs> whatever that means, sometimes I think in Arabic. In my dreams, whoever speaks Arabic to me will speak Arabic in the dream. Whoever speaks English to me will speak English in the dream. Mm-hmm. It also varies on the context of the dream. If I'm dreaming about, you know, like Minya or Cairo, it will usually be Arabic. If I'm dreaming about, you know, NYC, unless it's Astoria, then it's English. What about you? Um, I, for the most part, dream in English unless I'm spending a prolonged amount of time in Mexico. If I'm in Mexico mm-hmm. for more than a week, that's where my my dreams end up switching. Um, funny enough, my thinking, I think, is always in English. Like, you know, your little voice inside your head that sounds like you and like you could talk to yourself in your head. Do I sound like a psycho? Right. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. My little my little me is always speaking English um, for some mm. reason, even when I'm in Mexico for a long time. But uh, whenever I want to get on like language mode, I'll try to think to myself in other languages. Like if when I'm going to go to Brazil, I like try to purposely think to myself in Portuguese to get myself attuned to being able to speak those words. So um, dream in usually English. It depends unless I'm in Mexico and think in usually English. It depends unless I'm prepping myself to go on a trip. We want to know what language and... Uh, you guys dream and and, uh, thinking. So let us know in the comments on any of these videos. Um, But until then, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Americanish, where we explored the world of bilingualism. We hope that you've gained some insights onto some of the advantages and challenges of being bilingual as a first-gen immigrant and how it affects our identity and cultural practices. Remember that being bilingual is a valuable asset in today's globalized world, and it's never too late to learn a new language or reconnect with an old language. Join us next week for another exciting episode, and as, al- as always, until then, keep speaking Americanish. Amen. <laughs>